Limited resources in D&D can make for interesting scenarios and some tough choices from the players. But what if these resources are mundane with mostly no consequence? We'll take a look at some of these options and tell you which ones you might want to leave out at your tables on tonight's episode of The Crypt of Knowledge. Welcome back to another episode of the Crypt of Knowledge. I am your host, Goose, and as usual, I have Blake with me tonight. How are you doing, buddy? I'm doing very well. How are you, Goose? I am doing wonderful. It is post-Thanksgiving now, so I am 10 pounds heavier, and you know you know how that goes, right? Very much feeling it. <laughs> <laughs> but here we are. I have a little bit of a time between Thanksgiving and Christmas, and a lot to do, both on this podcast and in real life. You know, that Christmas shopping, last minute stuff. Yeah, still got some stuff to wrap up. (laughs) (laughs) But tonight, we're going to ignore all that. And we're going to talk about the rather large list of expendable and limited resources in the game that are usable, but things that you don't necessarily have to use in your campaigns if you choose not to. Yeah, a lot of this stuff is uh, what we would consider optional. Usually it's something discussed pretty early on. Yeah, it's a good thing for session zeros for the DM to kind of go through and say, well, how do we feel about this? How do we feel about that? Because while there are a ton of rules in the player's handbook, you know, Wizards has come out and said, basically, they're all optional. They're a guideline for you to start your journey down this path. So use what you want and don't use some of the other things. And so these are just a few options you can pick and choose from. Yeah, and like we said, it's a long list and... It's a good idea to be very careful and considerate when you're choosing what you want to use and what you don't want to use because it can shape your game. Yeah, it can. And a lot of these things, again, are the mundane paperwork, keeping up with this, keeping up with that, that some groups just wouldn't enjoy. It's something that doesn't affect gameplay deeply, but it can take time out of the game that those players don't want to handle. So again, usually when you're talking about maybe one of these rules that you don't want to use, a lot of things on this list might kind of fall in line with the same thing and be like, yeah, we don't want to have to deal with that. Yeah, I would say that most groups probably use at least one of these things that we're we're going to go through here, but very rarely do they use all of them. And there are things on this list that we won't talk about tonight, like spell slots or exhaustion or other things like that, that, you know, you can use and spell slots, I mean, kind of, they're what they are. There's some homebrewed rules so you can work around those, but those are things that are kind of built into the game and are useful and that aren't terribly hard to keep up with normally. Yeah, exhaustion comes into play every so often, and it usually isn't a huge issue to deal with. But this other stuff is is stuff that can has the potential to bog your game down, or it can add a nice little little bit of realism to your game. Yeah, and we'll talk about that later too. Whether you want a realistic game. Or whether you want a casual, laid-back type of game. That'll, that'll make a big choice on this as well. But the first one we want to really talk about is your character's lifestyle. Most people don't even think about it. Or if they're reading through the player's handbook, they kind of breeze through this section. But it's actually got a 
pretty decent section, a couple of pages in the player's handbook that talks about your players or your character's lifestyle. Yeah, it's definitely a good role-playing point for early on in the game because I think that it's something that new players, I think they think about it, they consider it, but the actual implications gameplay-wise of your character's lifestyle and maybe how much gold they start out with or what things are going to cost them early on, it can help shape decisions early on in the game. Yeah, and I think that's the part that most people will think about. They'll look as they're creating their character, well, how much gold am I starting with? You know, you have the option now you can start with just gold and bypass the equipment and buy your own equipment with the gold. Or you can start with your equipment and then have a little bit of gold left over. But it's still based on your character's lot in life. Are they piss poor or are they filthy rich? <laughs> you know, and everything in between there. So that not only starts your gold, but it also can talk about the rest of the things you do, especially in downtime. Yeah, so when you're creating your character, you do actually have about six, seven different choices to make about the lifestyle that your character lives, somewhere between wretched and aristocratic, ranging from zero gold a day to up to a whopping 10 gold pieces minimum per day expenses for your character. And that's something to think about. Yeah, and, and those expenses, when you break them down, can go to a myriad of things. But they can go to your housing, if you have housing somewhere in this world. They can go to just your general lifestyle. Do you have to have the best rooms? Do you have to get pampered every night? Do you take baths every day? Because in that time, in the D&D age, you didn't take baths every day. So if you're on that 10 gold a day, you're probably taking a bath every day if you can get to one. And those are the type of things that you don't generally think about because they're not talked about in the game they're just kind of implied so an example is in our campaign we're running now which is political intrigue in a city each of you has a home in the city yes each of you has a income some based on you get this every week and some based on how much let's say racketeering you do that sounds right. I think that's accurate. <laughs> so each of you has an upkeep that you have, and the biggest part of that is your abode, where you live. We just hit a new month, so literally when we start our next play session, you guys will have to pay out of what you have in your pocket for your monthly rent. So those are the type of things in most games that generally aren't coming up because you may be far away from your home and you're not thinking about it. So the players, the GM, uh, none of them are really thinking about that aspect, but it is there in the book and it can be used, especially when you're struggling to find things, which happens often in 5e, for your players to spend gold on. So it's easy for, for PCs to end up amassing large amounts of wealth and you buy potions, maybe you buy horses, a car, some, maybe you stay in the best inn in the area when you're passing through somewhere. But generally... Uh, you you need to be looking for things to spend your gold on, and these are really good ideas for for ways for based on how your characters your your PCs decide to live, what they're spending their gold on every day, and it's a good it's a good RP point because I know my my character in the current campaign is fifteen gold a month. I'm pretty yes. sure this he has a very nice place to live, and he has a butler now. <laughs> he has a live in a live in butler, so that's. That's caused his expenses to raise, but it's a, it's a nice little interesting thing, you know. Yes, who he has very much overpaid, <laughs> <laughs> but hey, she wasn't going to complain when you made the offer, so she's like, yep, I'm going to take it. 
it goes it goes along with the trope of how adventurers overpay for everything everywhere they go. They buy four ales at the bar and they give them a gold. I mean, realistically, that that barkeep is shutting shutting the end down the rest of the night. <laughs> yeah, or in extreme cases, as we had in a couple of campaigns ago, when they walk in and say, "I'm giving you a hundred gold. I want to rent these four rooms for the next week." The innkeeper literally hands them the keys and says, "You just bought the end. Peace out." <laughs> yeah, later I can retire now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> A hundred gold for most people who make a silver or so a, a month is a huge investment. So, yeah, it, a lot of times players and their characters will struggle finding places to spend the coin because not every town is going to have an endless supply of potions or all these fancy weapons that you'll want to keep buying. A lot of times you're just buying the simple stuff. But if you're a good adventurer... <laughs> you're out there finding wealth, finding dragon hordes, and finding other things. So yes, that wealth can amass pretty quickly. So the player's handbook actually lists the cost of these items uh, based on uh, how high class they are. And this is a really interesting little point for, for fledgling players and DMs because there was a moment, there was a we had a session early on in another campaign that I play in with a friend of mine who I've mentioned before is a new DM. And we were getting out of this little town, and we were making our first trek out into the world, and we needed to buy some horses. These are level one characters. We are essentially, in the grand scheme of things, completely broke. I think we made out with four horses at 15 gold a pop. We stole those horses. <laughs> yeah. Paid for them and still stole them. And that was something that we hit on later. I was like, yo, just so you know, <laughs> on your DM shield, there's, a, there's a, some charts here. <laughs> you can see how much that stuff is supposed to cost because we ended up wanting to buy some health potions too and i'm like we don't have enough for that let's just we got away with the horses <laughs> let's move on let's see how how tough things are in the beginning here yeah and there are a lot of dms especially newer dms who struggle with understanding what the costs of things are but it's all listed there and you can easily find it all on the internet if you're playing online either way that it's all there for you to look at now every town may be different if you're in a very large town, its economy may be booming, and those 50 gold piece potions may be 100 gold pieces, you know, or 75. Could be. Or you may get in with a shopkeep so well that they give you a discount, and so those 50 are now 25 or 35. So not every town is going to be the same, so DMs have some leeway. I have, at times, literally said, wait a minute, and looked up the price of an item you guys wanted to try to, to hawk to somebody, and told you how much it was and made it a realistic offer for it. At times, I will just be like, it's this much. And that's where we go with. That's the cost in this world. And doesn't matter what anybody else says because it's your own world, right? You made it up. That's right. Yeah, it's your game. <laughs> because they, every little town is going to have its own economy. You, you just said that. And that's something to keep in mind because maybe your PCs pick up every single little bit of equipment that they pick up off of the monsters they kill. And they go through the book and they say, oh, well, these, this chain mail sells, for, I'm just throwing numbers out, this chain mail sells for five gold pieces a pop, you know, and we've got ten. So that, you know, that's this much. Chances are, just like in the real world, like you're selling games back to GameStop, you're not getting five gold a pop for those. They're covered in goblin blood. It's not happening. And dents and everything else. <laughs> Yeah, those goblins probably found them on someone who was dead already. 100%. So it's twice or thrice used armor 
that you're trying to hawk off. So yeah, you, you have to consider that. You also have to consider if your PCs are doing that and bringing back everything they find, they're literally flooding the economy with so many items and not enough people to buy them. So you're going to flip the economy that way. So if someone truly understands economics and puts real world economics into their game, you have to be careful. You have to be able to not flip it one way or the other for you. Yeah, because they're not like shopkeeps in Skyrim. Well, they have, I'm pretty sure they have actually have like an amount of gold they can actually sell things they do. to you. Yeah, yeah okay, have, so that's a bad gold. example. But it's it's one of those things. You can't just go empty out your inventory and walk away with the spoils. It doesn't quite work like that. Generally, yeah. it doesn't. After you sell a shopkeep five chainmail, and a week later you come back to sell five more, and he hasn't sold the five previously, he's going to be like, no thanks. I'm good. I don't need any more inventory that I cannot move, right? First in, first out. We're going to get rid of these first. Or what is first in, last out? How does that go? Last no, first in, in, first in, first in, first out. You got it. FIFO. There you go. FIFO. <laughs> Fee, FIFO, FOM. <laughs> Restaurant work is ingrained that in my, my noggin. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, yeah, you have to be you have to be careful with the economies. But again, all of this, everything we've literally said since we started is optional. You could literally just go into every town and they could all sell the things for the exact same price. Or you can not have to worry about upkeep for houses and everything else that comes out of lifestyle and, and your PCs get to keep all the gold that they find. But again, they're str- you're going to struggle to find things to spend gold on in 5e. It's just the way it is. So I think it's neat. A lot of times too, you'll catch your players off guard because they'll be like, wait, I have to pay for things. I, <laughs> I have a lifestyle to keep up with. What does that mean? Yeah. It's an interesting little, little bit of realism to inject into the game that, doesn't make things too serious, but it doesn't let your players run amok either. Yeah. And you can get by if you really want to live in squalor at zero or one silver a day and, you know, pace yourself if you really want to live on the low end. But there are some who base their characters around the fact they're opulent. So they want to be opulent, they got to pay for it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I have two characters and they both run both sides of that extreme. Malice gives his gold away doesn't need it he's a forest druid doesn't need it but Niall, on the other hand he's spinning it every chance he gets wine and baths and all the all the extravagances yes he he has an image to uphold of course he, he definitely does. does he's a wealthy art dealer he's yeah. <laughs> art in air quotes yeah that's heavy emphasis on the art there yeah with air quotes <laughs> But yeah, so lodging, even food and drink, you know, you go into a town and a lot of times it's, you wind up in a, a tavern of some kind and you sit around the table and you talk. Do you make your players pay for the food that they eat there or is it assumed that it's included in the lodging or is it just something you don't think about? I think it's one of those things where, you know, if, if you don't want to worry about it, that's fine. But it's if they're having to pay attention to this, if there's a greater chance that they're going to pay attention to other really minute details that are actually going to matter. Like, moving on to our next point, like ammo. Is that something you want your characters to keep track of? Yeah, and that's always a tough one for me. Because arrows are cheap, man. They're really cheap. And they're super easy to make if you're any kind of bowery person. If you're using the bow, if you have the skill, not hard. Go snap a few twigs, you know? Sharpen them up, and you can make basic arrows. So, arrows... I don't make you guys keep up with them. No, not generally. Yeah, it's assumed that when you get to a town, you can either find enough for very cheap or you can make your own if you're given a few 
few minutes to do it. So I don't make you keep up with those. But if you're using bullets for an actual gun, if we've we've got that in our campaigns, a little bit those different. are not. Yeah, those are not cheap, and they are not easy to find because most campaigns, some yes, maybe a little more prevalent, but most campaigns, guns are not prevalent. So finding someone who can make them, understands gunpowder, and won't blow themselves up, is difficult. So yes, I do make you guys keep up with bullets. I do have formulas, and you can find these everywhere too, how much a bullet costs, how many you can make, what's the resources. Those are all over the internet as well. And especially in the Exandria stuff from Critical Role, it's got it all listed in there because it has all the different weapons. But I do make people keep up with bullets, but not arrows. I think it's just mundane and you're gonna fire a lot of arrows way more arrows than you do bullets what's the damage difference on uh, arrows to to bullets i don't ever i'm not sure i've actually used either really not a lot of difference it depends i think pistols are still a d6 uh, up to a d8 maybe a d12 for blunderbusses so i mean an arrow is a d6 so you know you're not going to get that extra damage unless you start adding in elemental arrows sure that i do make players keep up with if you have elemental type arrows you only get so many because those are rare yeah so i think base damage if you're just shooting a pistol isn't that much different than a normal arrow but it definitely makes it feel like more of a it's definitely more of a special occasion type thing i felt like anyone that we've had in any of our campaigns that have used a gun are pretty sparing with their ammo and whether that's because most of them could make them but it was always finding the resources to have on hand to make those bullets it was like either a lengthy process or sort of difficult to find the iron and and the gunpowder and everything else yeah it, it can be expensive to make them i think it was 20 bullets for uh i can't remember i think 20 bullets and it was a gold so you know not terribly expensive but definitely not cheap and again you had to find the materials with that and, and i think too guns are a different breed they can jam you have to reload them so there are other instances that make you, if you have other abilities to use along with that gun, then it might be better. So like the pirates in our campaign that we're running now that you met, they all had hand-to-hand weapons with them, mostly scimitars. But if you were too far away, they had the ability to pull out their pistol or the long rifle on one or two of them. And enemies are a little different as well because they don't always go by player rules. But I think a lot of times the gunslingers we've had in our group, one was a six-shooter. He was a spell slinger, so he could also load an entire chamber with a spell. So he was a little more careful with using those bullets once he loaded a spell. And then your other one was, it's a long rifle, and it was a one-shot. So he had to reload after every shot. Yeah, he had to really think about his action economy. Yeah, that's an entire round spent reloading as your action. You can still move, and you can still bonus action, but it was an entire round you had to take off after you shot that gun. Now, it did a lot of damage. Yeah, he was blowing holes in people. Yeah, but again, used in the right instance. So again, it's sparing on that ammo a little bit more. Another interesting point is that arrows are really super easy to reclaim after a fight. That's true as well. Yeah, you know where they landed. <laughs> exactly. Bullets are probably going to fly straight through whatever you hit. Or warp. Oh, sure. Yeah. 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 They're, they're not going to be refireable because you're going to put pressure on it as you fire it. And even the lead balls they used back then deformed when you shot them. And then once it hits something, it's definitely going to deform as well. So Yeah, and you're not putting that back in your gun. No. Now, you could, and I know one of our characters, the, the one who had the six-shooter, had the ability 
uh, to reclaim parts of those bullets to use as materials. So hmm. later on in his career, not when he started, but later on in his career, he had the ability to go out and actually regain some. So he had materials on hand. It was like a third or a quarter of what you're using. So it wasn't going to replace everything, but it helped some. You know, you run in a pinch and you can create a few bullets at least. Yeah, it helped him. He didn't run out, but it was still, he had to really think about what he was doing when he was firing that gun, what it was going to cost him in the long run. Absolutely. And again, one's a spell slinger, so he always had spells he could back up on. The other was a thief, so he always had those other abilities, the, the dagger dagger stuff that he could fall back <laughs> on and sneaking. So, you know, there are there were ways for both of them to be very efficient if they did not use their weapons. And again, I think that came into their their thinking as they were sometimes I'd be like, well, I'm going to put my gun away. Hey, I don't want to be loud when I'm trying to sneak. Yeah, yeah, that was a, <laughs> you know? a big part of it. Yeah, there's all kinds of things you had to think into of as, as we went through it. So ammo is one of those that's hit or miss for me. If you're going to use guns, I suggest you do, just because of the fact of how rare they are. But if you're just doing arrows, man, shoot those things everywhere. Yeah, I've got a little rogue right now who just picks up all the little arrows she can. Of course, now there's been like a limit imposed on how many arrows I can carry, which I think is fair. But, oh, no. but uh, you know, anytime I get a chance, you know, if I'm helping the lo- local garrison fight off some kobolds, hey, you got some, you got arrows laying around? Sure. I need to refill my my pack real quick, so I pick sure. them up any chance I get. Yeah, you walk by that barrel and it's full of arrows. You're just like one, two, three, six. There we go. All right, yep. we're good. Yep. <laughs> Keep <walking>. absolutely. <laughs> it's like in a video game, as you walk by and it, it flashes and lights up, and you stand beside it, just press A. <laughs> Press A to refill arrows. That's it. <laughs> so that's ammo. Uh, another one that that I think is is hit or miss with people in their campaigns is survival resources when you're not in a town. You're, you're away from the town and adventuring. Those can get mundane, uh, but some DMs really like to use them. So we're talking about like food and water, right? Exactly. We're talking about rations that you buy or that you hunt for. Or water, which, you know, is one of those that I, I've used food and rations, but I don't think I've ever once thought about my players drinking. Oh, like drinking water. Yeah. I've, I've never even it had it crossed my mind that they couldn't find a source of water somewhere. It's always very heavily implied. We play a lot of high level characters. So if somebody can't just straight up create water out of thin air, <laughs> which True. most of them can, it's usually pretty heavily implied that we have water skins or I know it's something that our players are super good about it. If we're on a, a we're traveling a long distance, somebody is usually foraging for some type of food or we'll go out hunting. And it's just part of how we like to, to role play is, you know, uh, you know, what do our food stores sort of look like? And then, but everybody at the end of a, a day, somebody sits down and cooks food pretty reliably. That's true, and and we've had some characters that were cooks. That was like that was their hobby. That's what they did. So it did. It tied in really well with the RP. And the last campaign, the city builder the, or the kingdom builder that you guys were running, you guys always thought about food because when you made your first trip into the wilderness, you were given supplies and you kind of kept up with that. But then once you got to where you were going and you started trying to build the city out, it was important to know because you had nearly 70 people you were trying to feed yeah it wasn't just us anymore 
Yeah, so you had to keep up with, okay, are we sending out parties to hunt? Are we fishing? Uh, where can we get the resources to keep everyone fed? And, and you started a farm at one point even, so that was heavily implied in that campaign. So again, it, it really will depend on your campaign, but a normal adventuring party that's just out in the woods, you're traveling from point A to point B, it's okay if you want to assume that these people are competent enough to find food every day. I don't feel it's necessary for them to have to go buy rations every time they set out from a city. And most of the time they'll have, at least the adventurer's pack comes with rations. I'm going to say it's a 10-day a ten supply. Yeah, everybody starts with a tent, everybody starts with rations. But then that brings up the question, if you started with these 10 rations, how long do they last? Now that's something that has I have never had that come up in a game. It's like, oh, well, I have 10 rations from how long ago exactly? Yeah. Are they MREs and you keep them forever? <laughs> <laughs> or is this just some jerky that you've salted and you hope it lasts a month? I you feel know, like that's, that's the assumption. Is like for yeah. the MRE thing, that sticks out. Like that resonates for some reason. I think <laughs> I think that's yeah. what people think. Everybody assumes they're just not going to expire at some point and go bad. And, and that's fine. Perfectly fine for your game. And, and we'll talk about gritty and realistic games later and all the differences that you, you can put into that. But uh, characters can go without food for three plus your con modifier days. So when you think about that, almost everyone's going to have at least a one. I think it's guaranteed you have to have a one in this scenario. So you've got four days that you can travel with no food. And as soon as you eat, that resets your counter. You can go another four days without eating. So is this something that you really want to use brain power and write this stuff down to keep up with when you can go eight days with one bite of food? And that's really interesting because I had never even heard that 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 setup before. I didn't even know that there was. I mean, obviously, there's a set amount of time you can go, but I had never. It's never come up. Yeah, straight out of the player's handbook. That's what's in there. Now, again, you're like most people, glazed right over it because why does it does it really matter? But that's that's my thinking. I don't want to spend the time keeping up with it when it's such a low penalty. Even at that, if you choose not to eat on your fifth day you take one level of exhaustion and that's not really all that bad it's it's not terrible and then you take another level each day that you don't eat but again it's such it's such an easy thing in four days if you can't kill a deer you don't need to be an adventurer yeah how are you killing anything else (laughs) yeah (laughs) it's pretty simple the same goes for water though characters need a gallon of water per day that kind of sounds like a lot when you think about it but how many times do you pass a stream? How many times is there a pond nearby? And, and I know the whole thing. You don't want to eat water that's not moving. Drink water that's not moving. We don't do that. But if you have just half a gallon, all you have to do is pass a DC 15 con check, and you're okay. If you fail it, you take a level of exhaustion. Or if you have less than half a gallon of water, you take a level of exhaustion. So water, I guess, is a little more harsh on its on its usage because you know we're 70 percent water right we need water but i it's still one of those things i just have never considered keeping up with yeah and it's funny too because like you were just saying like the food thing is such a low penalty the water it raises the stakes a little bit but it's even less considered in any of the games that i've ever played i mean you have a water skin it's assumed that you're not chugging it it, or that that you're picking water up somewhere along the way. It's just always been so assumed. So that's not something that I've seen people really stick to. But you yeah. certainly can. Yeah, it's in there. Again, There, you'd be surprised in the player's handbook and the errata that's out there 
how many things are laid out for you if you want to really dive deep and run more of an almost Pathfinder game? Because Pathfinder is rules heavy. They don't tell you these rules are optional. These rules are rules and you follow these rules and there's math. <laughs> You're going to do math. It's not a bad thing or a bad game. It's a great game. It came from third edition, three and a half. It's where it came from. It spawned out of that. So, I mean, if you liked third edition, you're going to like Pathfinder a lot too. They have different class options, different things like that. So, not a bad thing at all. We've talked about Pathfinder on here before. So, kudos to it. But it is a more heavy, rules-heavy game. Yeah, and it's... Like you said, it's not a bad thing at all. I personally loved third edition. So, I mean, if that's more your play style, then then go for it. And if it doesn't bog you down at all, then make your players keep up with that stuff. It's really good. It's all really good role play opportunities. Yeah. And I think a lot of this stuff is role play material. That's that's kind of where it boils down to. If you are a heavy role play group, then stick it in. You know, make them tell you what they're doing to find their food every night or where they're getting their water or how they're paying for all this lavish stuff that they all want to have. You know, it, it's perfectly fine to do that. Just like we mentioned at the beginning, have that session zero conversation about, hey, we want to make it pretty realistic. We, we want to dive in and we want to RP everything. We don't want you to assume that we eat or poop or anything else. We want to role play it all, baby. <laughs> I think there's absolutely a place for that. I, I think at some point, at least, if you've got some, if your PCs are heathens and they're not, I think it's uh, keeping up with all that. At some point, they should walk into an inn and they should be removed from it because they smell so damn bad. <laughs> yeah, there was not last campaign, maybe the one before. It was a, a point of the campaign they realized, y'all, it's been a month and we've never had a bath. <laughs> I remember this. Yeah. No, that, that that absolutely happened. We had a yep. it, it was like a like an anime. We had a, like a bathhouse episode. That was yep, yeah. There was a whole bathhouse episode because they're like, man, it's been a while. We we should really and and there were some calls of, well, we were out in the rain this time. <laughs> no, the dwarf like never takes armor off, sleeps in it, everything. Like this dude needs a bath. <laughs> yeah, it was it was pretty funny realization. And another one of those things where you you generally just don't think about it when you're playing. You know, it's just assumed. If you go somewhere that's got a shower, bath, you just take it. But not not a lot of places are open to having bath places for you. Yeah, it's actually, you know, if it's something that you want to have your, your players have to look for and actively seek out, then I think that's great. I think it adds a, a, nice, a nice little touch of realism without being too impactful on the actual game mechanics. Yeah, the, the bathhouse episode was fun. You can make <laughs> them fun. You can make them awkward. You can make them <laughs> however you'd like. But yeah. <laughs> again, it's it's RP. And, and you guys have always been RP heavy. Our last two sessions, I think, were just RP. I don't think we've had combat. Oh, yeah. Zero combat the last two sessions. Lots of scheming. Lots of political bad stuff. Lots, lots of scheming. <laughs> lots of scheming. Another thing we've really liked to use in our campaigns is crafting, though. Mm, yes. Uh, Though the player's handbook, the DMG has some information about crafting and how you can expand it. But again, there are so many other third party options out there. And a lot of the things that we've done are been things I've made up. So that's another resource you can choose to add to your game. So every time you guys are out, uh, whether you're looking for potions, items, gathering these resources to make your own, all this can lead to plot points. At some point, you know, you guys have all been looking for something crafting wise that's led to a plot point i remember 
in the last one, in the King Kingdom Maker, you guys had an event that happened, and meteorites fell from the sky. Yep. So you had extra metals you were looking for as you were searching for these meteorites, and it led to a whole weird... Uh, they weren't exactly awakened shrubberies or trees, but they were very similar. They were irradiated in, in this meteorite that had brought down this weird material inside of it had kind of brought them back to life. So it, it led to a wonderful plot point, a, a wonderful little combat scenario, and then trying to figure out what this stuff was. So all of these things, while optional, can lead to really good RP and great plot points. So rules is written, you have, as far as armor slots, what, two rings, an amulet, a chess piece, and what else? That's it. That's what you got as far as anything that can affect your AC. Yeah. So what you've allowed us to do is have quite a few more options than that. And I know that more than one session was spent almost entirely crafting after having spent quite a bit of time out in the wilderness and, and killing a dragon, defeating a large demon. And so we had all of these these parts. And this may go back to another of our little, what we do when somebody misses, our little monster hunter thing. And anybody who's familiar with that franchise, you will understand this. We take the creature parts and other, let's say, rare materials, and we can combine them. And without knowing immediately what those effects will be, after you've crafted the piece, you do. And then you can use that to craft more things, different things in the future. And so we had a, a wide variety of some very powerful items. It expanded to, to gloves, pauldrons, boots, belt. Oh, I'm not sure what else. Cape, maybe? Yeah, cloaks. There, there were a lot. And I think it did start in the Monster Hunter part. And then we kind of carried it over to the, the Kingdom Builder, where it just kind of kept expanding. And I kept adding more things to it. <laughs> I think there were... 80-ish different gems that you could use in your crafting. Yeah. They all had different abilities. There were six or seven different woods. There were 20 metals. Uh, so yeah, it was it was in-depth. And then again, like you said, along with every creature or animal that you killed had parts that you could harvest off of it. Some were mundane and didn't help much, but others were pretty powerful. And, and you guys did. You had, I think... So you had your basic slots, and then you had, I want to say it was eight other areas that you could add to. Now, they could not affect your AC. No. So it, it, they could affect, like on your weapons, you had different slots that you could change those in and out. They're kind of like gem slots. You could add things into that, and that could have changed like your plus one to attack, plus two to attack. So your weapon could kind of grow with you. But as far as your AC, the only thing that affected your AC would be if you had like a ring of protection... Or your basic armor. So your whatever chest piece you're wearing. Everything else affected other things, gave you extra abilities, all of that. So it was, that's a lot of homebrew. I do not suggest anyone <laughs> tackle that unless they're really comfortable with the game. But it was a lot of fun. And like you said, you had an entire three-hour session where that's literally all you guys did was Easily. craft. Yeah. And <laughs> I, I mean, we wound up, and we've said this before, that Goose likes to make us hyper-powerful. And I mean, the monsters we fight reflect that. I mean, I know. I want to say I have several pieces. Now, I have very few pieces missing on my druid. But maybe my bracers would allow me to double double the damage on one of my spells on per day. On one spell per day. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's ridiculous when you're talking about a 13th level druid who mm -hmm. can I mean, bust out a disintegrate, like a max roll disintegrate, double that. I mean, that's ridiculous. That's a ton yeah. of damage. Or a... A circle of death or something, a, a huge AOE, I mean, you're killing everything around. Easy. Yeah. 
Yeah, and, and I did. I had to ramp up the ability of things that you fought. Some was just adding more to it, but a lot of times it, every monster you faced was kind of homebrew anyway. So I just gave it more HP and, and maybe an extra attack. And we'll talk about actually some of this that I based some of that around here as we get into it a little bit later in the section. But crafting can be a super fun thing to do in the downtime. You can't always be running through storyline for storyline after storyline there's got to be some downtime at some point and it's something really fun for these characters to look forward to being able to do it, they don't have to wait for that level up to get more powerful they can do it through something they craft yeah and that's that's the one thing because it also leaves milestone so it definitely gave those moments of of all those those little in between all the downtime really was if we felt like it we could spend that time making our characters more powerful in really tangible ways. And that that's such a good feeling. Well, it was always fun, too, for you guys to be like, okay, I've got this moonstone. Let's see what a moonstone does when I pair it with ash wood. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And you had no idea what these items would do, and you stick them together. And this is going a little more into detail than really anybody probably cares about. But every <laughs> item had, like, one word that it did so like moonstone might have been chaos <laughs> so, oh it, it became the interpretation thing yeah so when you would put things together you might form something completely different than if you had to use that moonstone as something else so it, i didn't want to make it super specific some of them were fire and some of them were the, the different elements so i had some play with those but they were what they were Others, I had no idea what I was going to make out of them when I put the word down. I'm like, I have no idea how this was used. So it really was you putting two or three items together to form something that formed some kind of idea in my head and said, okay, this is how this would work together if you put all those items together. So it was really neat and fun for not just you guys, but for me too, because I had to come up with the <laughs> items. <laughs> Keep them juices flowing, man. Yeah, it was it was rather fun, I think, for, for all of us. So it, it's a good thing to put in there if you want to add something in to do in downtime. Again, it's also something else they can spend their money on. If you're looking for them just to kind of blow some gold here and there, they can go buy resources for things like that. So definitely something to, to take a look at. Now, all of these things we mentioned are things you can avoid. These are things you can add. They can spice up your game. You can use them for a session or two and not for others. So if you don't want to worry about rations or food, but then they decide, well, we're going on this long trek. Okay, well, this time you guys have to worry about your rations. I want you to be able to stock up or tell me how you're going to find it while you're out there. Mix and match. You know, it's all for the group, all for your enjoyment. Everyone should be having a good time. And if people don't want to keep up with items and all that kind of stuff, then a lot of these aren't going to be fun. Yeah, and it's something to talk about very early on and to stay in direct contact with your players or your GM about that. But I think that that's a really good way to do it. If you don't want to keep up with it normally, that's fine. But if they're going to be 50, 100 miles from the nearest town for a while, maybe it's time to start thinking about that stuff. Yeah, and I've been very lucky with you guys because you've always been open to changes I want to try. I throw them at you and say, well, let's try it this way and let's play this way. And we at one point tried a gritty and realistic style game. There's lots of ways to do it. You can just use all these rules that are already there and it makes it a little bit more realistic. Or there are complete overhauls out there such as Giphy Glyph's Darker Dungeons. And we'll have a, a comment down in our notes about where you can find all his stuff at. But it's over 150 pages. It has class rebalances, which I like a lot. A lot of his stuff just makes sense. 
It has other things in there that go as far as lingering wounds. So you could get a hit by a crit and you picked up a lingering wound. It might be that your AC is lowered by this or you might have lost an arm. And so you now can only use one arm in combat. So if you were board and sword, you got to choose one or the other. You don't have two arms anymore. And there were ways that required a lot of resources to fix those lingering wounds. But it was pretty intense. There were diseases you could pick up if you didn't follow the stringent rules of bathing and all the other stuff. Stress on your characters for every comet that they went into, for every time they ran out of food, all those things. And it, it really ramps up the realism. And it's not for everybody. No, it's definitely not. There are some of those things. This is just personal opinion again. It's one of those things that I feel like the base game is missing. Now, I, I understand they're, they're, they want to gear it more for casual play, and that's absolutely yeah. fine. But what if, I mean, everybody loves the gritty hero who's missing an eye, wears an eye patch, or has, you know, scars and stuff. Well, how do you get those if every single time you leave a combat, you're just perfectly unscathed? <laughs> I mean, yeah, well... <laughs> Right. <laughs> <I've>, <laughs> it's like a level a level one cleric is going to hit you with like a, a healing touch and like all of a sudden you're no longer impaled. Mm, yeah, right. Well, I don't know about all that, but the, the stress thing I really love. And maybe I like Darkest Dungeon. I like Call of Cthulhu type stuff. So that stuff really appeals to me. And it's not for everybody, but the first edition I ever played was second. And after combat, you had to wrap wounds or you kept bleeding. Yeah, that is 100% true. It, it was much, it, again, it, first edition was based off of a combat game. It was a combat simulator. So it, it had a lot more of those things that were ingrained in it. And it, as you mentioned, it's lessened over the years because they're trying to appeal to more people. And hardcore combat games, just, you know, like Warhammer and those types of things, just don't appeal to everyone. So when, when you take a lot of that out and leave them as options, again, a lot of the stuff's still in there. You leave them as options, but most people kind of pass by them and, and don't touch them. So, yeah, again, you mentioned you know Dark Dungeons. This is what is kind of was based off of when he formed this book. And it really is neat, uh, all the things that you can do in it. it. But, again, even some of the stuff was not fun because it changes encumbrance and everything to inventory space. Everything you picked up either took one, two, three, or four spaces in your inventory bag, and you only had a certain amount of space, depending on what kind of backpack you were carrying. It was really limiting, <laughs> which is good and bad in certain instances. Yeah, if you're a fan of like Diablo-style stuff, then that's for you. Yeah, yeah. Try to turn that sword just right to fit more in your inventory <laughs> bag. See if that works out for you. <laughs> but but little things like that, I think, were, were kind of what drove us away from using it. And again, you could use just the stress part or the lingering wounds part in your campaign if you want to. You can check it out. It's free. So you can just go. We'll have the link again in the show notes. You can just go check it out, add in the stuff you want to. He pretty well constantly updates it. The only thing I think that he runs behind on updating is the module for Foundry. There is one that allows you to create monsters because he has a, a monster creator thing too that kind of runs it's an app so it's real easy to create monsters in it and you can run through them there's one for foundry but i don't think he's updated it to version 10 yet i think it's still on 9 so he's a little behind there <clears throat> but if you still play on version 9 in foundry you can still use that even so there's a lot of good stuff on uh, giffy glyphs page again i'll say it, we'll link it again so it'll be down there and you can check that out so that's i think probably the most realistic thing you can do to make your game gritty and dark 
But if you're a fan of Matt Colville, who does a lot of things for this industry, has a lot of good YouTube videos, if you're starting out as a DM, definitely check him out. But he talks about what he called action-oriented monsters. Have you looked at that before, Blake? I haven't, but it sounds dangerous. It is, and you fought some of them before. I'm not surprised. (laughs) (laughs) So this is another way we've talked a bunch of times on here about making combat about more than just killing everything and making combat more dangerous. And that's what happens in Matt Colville's style of action-oriented monsters. A lot of people have added their spin on it and a little bit here and there, and you can do the same. But it basically proves the ability of monsters, especially solo monsters, to be able to handle, action economy-wise, a full group of adventurers. If I bring out my boss, and he's a solo boss, and there's four players, the action economy is always on the player side by a ton. Heavily unbalanced. Yeah, so what usually winds up happening in those instances is whack, 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 you're wailing on this guy who has high HP, and then when it gets to his turn, he hits real hard. Yeah. Real, real hard. <laughs> so it's a dangerous game of balancing that. And then you get back off and it's whack, whack, whack again. You're, you're getting hit. And you just hope you have enough HP to last two or three rounds so you can get a couple of hits in. And that's, that's not always fun. So what this does, the monsters gain villain actions. Oof. Just like legendary actions. They get bonus actions. They get reactions. And if they're bosses, they get boss actions. So if you haven't looked at his videos, I'll actually post a link for that in the show notes too because it's really cool information. And he goes through and builds a couple of different monsters to show you how it worked and what he would give them. But we have fought some of these that each stage kind of changes in the battle. And that's kind of what these uh, legendary actions are when he talks about them, and Matt Colville talks about them, he has them set for round one, round two, and round three, and they they move the pacing. So the first one will be something movement-oriented that can allow whatever boss it is to get in position where they need to. So whether it is uh, additional movement or, you know, some way to move across the board. He had the instance of, like, a vampire that's able to, you know, teleport itself, turn into mist, and, and fly to its certain spot as an action. And then the next would be getting all your minions, if you have them, into position or getting yourself into position or the ability to escape a scenario where you're stuck or surrounded. So it might be something where it's an AOE that's around you or it might be another movement that allows you to bypass any uh, opportunities, uh, attack of opportunities that the players have against you. So those are really neat. And then the last one would be, because combat's usually three to five rounds, the last one would be an action that the monster does that's that's kind of a ha one last hit i get on you so if like the monster dies it might splash 10 foot around it in acid or it might blow up so there are things that it does that just are that one last bit that say you can't get out of here unscathed you're taking some damage from me so it's pretty neat and again having those legendary actions means i don't have to wait four turns to go again. I can interrupt and go between your turns. So it, I think it really helps out the action economy. Yeah, it definitely makes bosses feel more like bosses. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's different. It's one thing to go into, like you just like a solo boss fight like that, and then everybody else gets to go, and the boss gets to go. Even if he gets a legendary resistance or a lair action every you know, every now and then in there, like that's, that's good and all, but it's still going to feel unbalanced, and we like the DMs to have fun too. So, I mean, yeah. what is a good boss site without at least one PC going down? 
<laughs> this yeah, makes you that want really to be easy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, they they have to be dangerous. So I think this is a really good way of making it more dynamic, more dangerous. The battlefield changes. He had another example of like a a, uh, a goblin boss who brought in minions, and then all his lair actions or legend actions, the stuff that happened each round, were him being able to control those minions. You know, he had a reaction that you know he could tell them to attack one person. So it could be like focus on this person, and the goblin's got a free move to surround that person. Yikes! He he had one that he called "You die when I say you die," <laughs> where each round he could choose one of his goblin minions that had died, and they come back up to one HP. Wow! So you know some really good reactions and abilities that could change the shape of a battle. You know if if in the second round he says you know go attack the cleric. And there's six goblins that surround the cleric. That's a problem. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And a lot of the party's probably going to disengage from whoever they're with. Stop trying to fight the goblin boss and go take care of the one surrounding the cleric. Then if you kill one of them, then he can just bring one back. <laughs> so. Makes combat really well-rounded. Yeah, Very dynamic. Absolutely. And that is a key, is to not just think every battle has to be hack and slash till everything's dead. You may, in that instance give them other scenarios. That goblin boss may say, well, while you're distracted, I'm going to get out of here. Or he may, I think one of the options too is to call in reinforcements. So, you know, there are a lot of things that you can do with this type of action-oriented monsters that leads your players to not just want to kill everything, which is good. Yeah, because, I mean, trust me, that's we're hardwired to do that. So if you can make them really work, work their brain, stretch those muscles a little bit, everybody's going to be the better for it. Yeah, absolutely. And the combats we have had so far in our current campaign, the political campaign, have had other scenarios. You didn't want to kill the pirate captain at first. Yes. And then the entire second combat was at the hanging for the pirate. His men were there to escape with him. You guys chose not to? Sort of half and half. Half and half. Some were distracted and didn't see, and the other one kind of was like, I'll help you escape. I feel bad for you. So, you know, each of those scenarios had reasons not to kill everybody there. It's more fun when there are other scenarios and there are other outs to it. Use your brain, outthink people, not just use your dice all the time. Yeah, this whole campaign has been one big mental exercise so far. (laughs) It's, It's been a fantastic run. But that is about everything for resources that are kind of there, but not always useful. A lot of people kind of bypass them. But we just wanted to touch base on them, let you know what the real rules are. Because, again, a lot of DMs and players didn't even understand how some of these things worked. And also let you know that it's perfectly fine not to use them. Yeah, it's totally normal, super common, and, you know, whatever makes your game more fun for you and your players. That's the bottom line. Every single time, we will continue to say it every episode, I'm sure. Whatever makes your table happy, that's where you want to be. Till we're red in the face, we will say it. (laughs) <laughs> well, next week, we're going to dive into D&D Beyond. We're going to take a look at all its features, how you can effectively use it as a player and as a DM. There's a lot of cool stuff in there. D&D Beyond is fantastic. Wonderful tool. Fantastic. If you haven't touched it, please go take a look at it. We'll put a link in the notes for that as well. We'll dive into it on the next episode of Cryptonology. Good night, everyone. Good night, everyone.